Hello, welcome to the TFO Football Podcast. Me again, no Joe, no Alex, no warm embraces, no cool hands, or however Joe says it. But Nick Miller's coming on to talk about Forest. Actually, it's a bit of a broader chat. We talk to Nick about all kinds of things, and it's um, it's great fun. I haven't seen Nick for a couple of months, obviously, because of the uh, the conditions in the UK. But really nice to catch up, talk about Forest, talk about Forest past, their present, their future, also about his family's links with Forest uh, and his relationship with his parents. It's it's a really good listen. I, I hope people enjoy it. So um, without any further ado, let's get going. So you know how on a lot of podcasts, a lot of very popular podcasts, they have that little bit where they, they record the, the conversation before the podcast where no one's really talking about the subject they've been brought on to talk about, but it's kind of a, a cool way to, to begin. Do you know that, Nick? You just kind of, you've just walked in the room, maybe someone's got a coffee, you know, you, 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 you're talking about um, your journey here, something like that. And then you go, oh, hello, the, 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 the the lights on red let's we're recording exactly yeah, it's, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a composed professional broadcaster this is just how easy this all looks i'm not actually you know in the background sweating profusely and worried that i don't know enough about the subject we're here to talk about it's, it's that isn't it yeah yeah absolutely yeah we're giving off the vibe of relaxed professionalism <laughs> okay so you're here to so I, I brought you on um under the premise of giving the opportunity to have a bit of a moan about forest um mm. and we will do that uh, I shall be your your Dr. Melfi, and you can be your, well, you just, you know, be you. Um, but how are you? I haven't spoken to you for ages. I'm all right. I'm okay. I'm, um, you know, everything, the, the world is tumbling around our ears, but um, I'm kind of staying indoors a lot. So uh, it's, broadly speaking, not happening as far as I'm concerned. So, are, you, are you in an area that's been locked down? Well, we, we I'm in South London, so um, we are being moved into tier two uh we're recording this uh, on friday morning um so by midnight tonight we'll officially be in tier two lockdown um still slightly unclear as to what that means but i think it just means just stay indoors for a bit so i'm gonna try and do that and not go absolutely tonto and what this is the thing isn't it because i i read through the tiers again yesterday and they all sound very very similar I mean, I don't really, I mean, I don't want to turn this into a kind of a rant about coronavirus because I don't think the world needs more coronavirus content, I don't think. But it's, it's, this is, this is a problem. I, I'm confused as to what I can and can't do, um, depending on which part of the country I'm in. Um, and it's baffling. It's absolutely baffling. It's good that um, everything is fine and proceeding as normal in, in the world of football to, um, to distract us from the chaos of the real world isn't it it sure is i mean uh it's been a very normal football weekend mm. uh, <laughs> um but before we get to that though like you um what what's your job title now uh, totally because obviously totally is now part of the athletic um mm. and we all get super important sounding job titles i think my the, the the job title on my contract is um senior writer and i well i have various responsibilities i still work on the totally football show um and I do the Totally Football website, social media. Um, I'm also involved with producing a number of other podcasts, which 
a couple of which are out at the moment. One is called The Next Big Thing, which is about the most promising young players in the Premier League. Um, there is another one called Beyond the Headline, which is kind of what it sounds like, really, which we're currently working on one about the uh, the Neymar transfer from Barcelona to PSG and the kind of ripple effects of that. Is that going to be uh, like a, a documentary on, on yeah, that transfer? Yeah, do- documentary-style podcast. Um, at the moment, it's looking like it's going to be in three parts. Um, about you know how how the transfer came about and what the wider impact of it was. Um, obviously, uh, Barcelona used the money to uh, really rather unwisely buy Felipe Coutinho and Usman Dembele, and then the money that um, Liverpool got for Coutinho allowed them to buy the spine of a Champions and Premier League winning team. So. Um, I'm not sure when that's going to be out, but um, it should be interesting. Got another question for you because um, we've both been through this situation recently. Um, do you miss match reporting? Because obviously it's not really part of your job anymore. It's not really part of my job anymore. Do you miss the Saturdays and the Sundays and the midweek games? Sometimes I kind of I miss, but it's I don't think it's necessarily um, missing it on a sort of individual level. I just miss it in connection with missing the rest of normal football. I miss being at games with crowds and I miss having the sort of the very different perspective you get from being at the game rather than watching on TV. And I miss the kind of, I don't know, I miss the sort of visceral parts of football rather than just the sort of vote, because obviously you're you're obviously one-stepped removed when you're watching on TV anyway but when there isn't a crowd and you're having to choose between silence and piped in crowd noise you're a step removed from it as well so I'm not especially missing for for various reasons you know traipsing up and down the country going to games and getting back at weird times and you know not seeing my partner um, as much as I really should do so I'm not uh, it's at the moment I'm not I'm missing it enormously, and I'm enjoying sort of watching football as a as a fan again to a to a to a point. Um, but I, I am. It is also a worry that it's it's just like a kind of like it's a sort of muscle that you um, that not not engaging with a particular game in the sort of intense way that you generally do when you're at a game and you have to write something specifically about that game um you kind of worry that that that, that muscle is going to get flabby and um you just you drift away from kind of being on top of what's going on and you drift away from having a sort of more informed opinion about games um because it's very easy when you're when there's no kind of professional imperative to watch you know game on Sunday afternoon to just kind of go oh, I don't really need to watch this I'll just kind of go off and make a gravy or something make a, um, make a gravy <laughs> yeah you know just, uh, just 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 something else that you, that kind of needs doing that you don't necessarily um, you know you don't you wouldn't necessarily have the chance to do if you were you know on the train to Leicester or whatever it, or whatever it is to um, to actually report on a game so it's 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 hard at the moment. I'm still I, I'm I'm missing it less than I thought I was going to. That's the short answer that you were probably looking for. But um, uh, whether when um, crowds come back and uh, if I'm still not going to games quite as much, then uh, maybe I'll miss it more then. 
You know, it's funny. It's like um, some of the hardships are actually what I do miss. I mean, take the current situation out of the equation. Like, all right, the most exciting part of the week was you get up early. If you're going to like, um, I live in the south. Um, I did. Um, and if you were going north, you'd have to get up at like you know, six, seven o'clock in the morning and you'd be at the station if it was winter and it was still dark. You know, you're sitting on the station, you get on the train, first coffee and you're going somewhere and you get there. And I, I was I was always habitually early for football. So I'd be there like if it's a three o'clock kickoff, 12.05, you know, because Premier League um, rules mean that you have to you have to open your stadium to the media three hours before kickoff. And I used to love walking around like, you know, not the media parts, but just the empty stadium. Um, I don't know why that. I, I think I just like the, um, you know, that scene in Goodfellas where they walk through the kitchen. Um, yeah, it, it's a little bit like that because you sort of you're able to kind of go somewhere that nobody nobody else is at that point in time. I think I just like the the feeling of self importance. I think that's what <laughs> that's what we're about to reveal. <laughs> yeah, I I am allowed in these places. You you are not. Beauty surfs are not. You know, and and, <laughs> and you get to see things like um, stewards walking around doing their last security checks and concession stands opening up and like, you know, um, piling up bags of Maltesers and, you know, those weird sort of hot doggy things that you get, um, you know, where the, where the bread entirely encircles the sausage that don't even, I'm not even sure what that's called, but those. Um, and it's, it's, it's weird. Um, it's a... Uh, it's a strange, it's a strange thing. Okay, let's. Yeah, let's... I, I, I remember when I was at a Brighton game a couple of years ago, and I saw, um, the, the, the I think the media entrance is the same as the entrance the referees go in, and I saw the refereeing crew, yeah, turn up in this kind of uniform. Yeah, they were all in uniform, yeah. all in the kind of the the same tracksuit, or they were, they showed up in this kind of blacked out windowed Land Cruiser or some or you know minibus or something like that. Um, and it felt a little bit like seeing your teacher in the shops yes. or, you know, something like that, yeah. just kind of officials out in the wild, but not quite out in the wild. And it was something that you'd probably only see if you, A, were there ludicrously early and B, were allowed in the kind of media section. So, yeah, that, that weirdly, I agree, those little things I, I quite miss. And they're kind of, when they, when they, when they go onto the pitch and they're still in their uniform, they, they wear like, um dark suits and sort of um, tan brogues. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a funny little outfit. Mm. Um, but it, they before before the stadium opens, they go out onto the pitch and they, um, they're with a the ball and they test the goal line technology at either end. And it's always the referee who dribbles the ball from the halfway line. And there's like, you can see the kind of the fear of going viral in these people because they get to about, like if it was me and I was... I don't know if 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 someone wanted, needed me to test goal line technology at White Hart Lane, I think I'm gonna go from about 25 yards because you have to, don't you? You have to, you have to, you have to do it with a little bit of, I don't know, a bit of swagger. Referees invariably they go almost to the penalty spot before very tamely toe poking the ball in. It's a. Yeah. I feel like that's a that that's that describes some kind of character trait in these people. Yeah, it it feels like there are only two acceptable ways to do it. You either go for something spectacular, you try the kind of Gareth Bale slash Ronaldo kind of wobble free kick from thirty yards. Or you try and knuckleball it in a pair of Yeah, try and try and knuckleball it, <laughs> or you take it to within six inches of the goal line and absolutely leather it. So the, 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 exactly just, that. The, 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 anything else seems like a waste of time. It's a waste of opportunity, Nick. It's like yeah. you're there, you're doing it, and it's as if these people have kind of they they they're sort of they they're, they're seeing their future 
as they're doing it, be like, oh, you know, Andre Mariner falls on his ass and spoons ball into, you know, if he was a Craven Cottage, into the Thames or something like that. <laughs> and it becomes this massive viral hit. Um, and it's just like, come on, live live a little bit dangerously. Um, right, let's, that, I thought that was pretty good sort of um, cool guy intro to the pod. That, that worked quite well. Um, we might do that again. Probably not when Joe and Alex are here because they won't allow me to, but um, it was good this time. Um, uh, and let's move on to Forrest. So... We're going to get to the Agony Aunt bit um, because I feel like that um, involves quite a lot of Forest modern history. Um, but let's trace your roots of Forest. You're a Forest fan. Um, I, th- I think I'm right in saying your mum and dad are Forest fans too. Yeah, the, um, my, well, here's a date little secret. My dad was a Chelsea fan until he met my mum. They met at university and um, was kind of quickly converted and just in time as well. They, they got married in 1975, I think Oof, it was. That's good timing. That yeah, is very, very uh, good timing. And first got a, they first got a season ticket, I think the season that Forrest got promoted from the second division, um, or this certainly first started going uh, regularly then. Um, and yeah, they were uh, given the choice. In 1979, they had they just moved into a new house and they uh, had the choice between buying carpets for the new house or going to the European Cup final in Munich. And um, I'm happy to say they made the correct choice. Good, 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 and, good, um, fantastic. Had some fashionable bare floorboards for a little while um <laughs> so yeah that, that and my, um my mum's been going since she was very very little took me to my first game in 1988 i think it was which was a 1-0 defeat to wimbledon and i was instantly hooked um i, I was kind of born at probably the worst possible time to be a forest fan because in those kind of first four or five years Forest went to Wembley five times, I think. Um, won a couple of trophies. There was the sort of veneer of success um, that, you know, paled in comparison to the previous, you know, previous success. But the veneer of success, um, nonetheless, and it was just close enough to the real glory days for my dad and for. for my mum and for other people to for it to be very clear in their memories and then to be able to recall it very quickly. So I was treated to these great tales of when Forrest sat astride English and European football while, you know, <laughs> while having moderate success um, that I could see in front of me. And then from 1993 onwards, it's kind of been a... Not quite uninterrupted downward spiral, but um, you know, downward spiral with a with a few little upticks in it, and um, all the while, sort of celebrating a glorious past. So I wouldn't change it for the world being a Forest fan, but it is pretty tough going sometimes. You know what's interesting about Forest is that I feel like I feel like they occupy quite a unique position because obviously, almost you know most football fans. Um, even if they don't know the texture of it, they're aware of what happened um, with those two European Cups. They know the story. They at least know the outlines of the story. I feel like if you're not a Man United fan and if you're not a Liverpool fan, then you invariably have a little bit of a soft spot for Forest. You know, forgetting obviously Derby County supporters, but like you kind of they represent something which, um, obviously, to every footballer, every football fan is like the dream. Is that kind of um, that rise it's all the optimism and the kind of the uh 
thing that keeps you going to football every week because you want to see, you want to believe that you can, um, you can, what was the famous quote that, um, you know, Clough and Taylor found um, a shipwreck and, you know, turned it into an ocean liner, isn't it? And mm. that's the kind of, that's the, that's the, that's the dream as a fan. But also um, because of where they came from, because they're not a Man United and because they're not a Liverpool, um, a lot of fans kind of, I don't know, I've spoken to people that seem to live vicariously a little bit through what happened to Forrest on the Clough. And it's just a, um, it's a strange thing because also now you look at, if, if you if you know that story well, you know also that it can never happen again, which is a very, I don't know, it's a very difficult thing to to get your head around. It's very dispiriting if you linger on it, actually. Yeah, um, and um, particularly for... Uh, for, for forest fans of a certain age, maybe I am slightly protected from it, in, given that I didn't, I wasn't there to um, to kind of really experience the glory days. So I can't quite exp- quite experience the despair that it's never going to happen again. That um, people of the generation older than me do. Um, but it, I mean, on speaking of generational things, I think the the kind of idea of forest as a kind of um, I mean, it, it, you you very often see these kind of oh, if I designed the Premier League and if I picked you know which teams were in Forrest the are always League. in it. Forrest well, Forrest, I think Forrest are always in it for people of a certain generation. Yeah. Um, and I think that generation is the generation is not disappearing, but I think I think loosely speaking, it's going to be people under the age. It's over over the age of about thirty. I think I think um, Seb, you and I, I think we're of a, a, a similar age, and I think we won't mention what that similar age is. But yes, no, we that are. would be yeah. that would be awfully rude. But um, <laughs> we, I think we are of the last generation to think of Forest as a default big team, just simply because Forest have been haven't been in the Premier League since 1999, and you know, 21 years is a uh, is a is a very long time. It's it's quite literally a lifetime. Um, and so, I mean, why would someone who started watching football in, or started being kind of, um, really aware of football in say 2002 or something like that, why would they think of Forest as a big team? They would just be aware of this kind of side that people older than them talked about with sort of slightly misty eyes and irritating nostalgia. So I think... Even someone, a, a team like Portsmouth, I think, for a, a generation slightly younger than us, if they, if you know, if a thirty-year-old or someone in their late twenties maybe was going to pick a team that are not currently in the Premier League that they think should be in the Premier League or they associate with being a big club, they would pick someone like Portsmouth. So I, I wonder how long the sort of um, nostalgia f- fueled. Um, you know, elevation of Forest as a good slash um, romantic team is going to last. It's obviously, <laughs> given that it's based on things that happened forty years ago, it's already lasted quite a long time. But I wonder how long that is that is actually going to last. Do you think part of this? I mean, like part of what what I find strange is that that, that the Forest team that won the European Cups, it's not spoken of in the same way as the Liverpool teams, um, the '68 United team. Um, do you think one of the reasons is the is the people involved in it? Because um, take Clough away, and, and you've got a lot of really engaging personalities, a lot of really brilliant players, but people, but players that don't really exist in the 
in the kind of the game's consciousness in the same way, quite unjustly. Like if you if you think of someone like well, John McGovern is the obvious one, isn't it? Guy won two two European Cups, and yet he's kind of like if you asked the average, let's say, twenty eight year old whether they'd heard of John McGovern or even John Robertson, like it's it's strange to me that they kind of they don't occupy the same the same place on the mountain, um, and that's a it's because for instance like. We worked together a long time ago. When, when Tifo had a um, had a website, you went off and, and, and did a fabulous interview with um, with John Robertson in the pub, if I'm if I remember rightly. And you just sat. It and, was, and, Ga- and Gary Bertels turned up unexpectedly. It was wonderful. Gary Bertels once fat shamed me at Molyneux. <laughs> I was. I'm not joking. Like I was. I was sat having my meal before uh, before uh, I can't remember which game it was. A couple of years ago now, and. Um, well, no, it can't have been about, about a year ago because I was supposed to, I, I did end up getting married, but I was supposed to get married in June of this year, ended up in August. And um, and I was kind of becoming conscious of my weight. I was like, I've got to, I've got to lose about a stone. And so um, one of the, the perils of covering football is the buffet and the amount of food that you're exposed to across the course of a working day. And so I sat down um, at one of the, the desks at Molyneux and had a salad and Bertels. Uh, sits down next to me and mocks me for having a salad. I'd never had a conversation before with Gary Bertels. Like, the thing is, is what I'm trying to, try to get. What I'm trying to get at is, firstly, with with players from um, with the players who have occupied the same space in the game, so won European Cups before. A, you don't really see them in media areas. B, you know, um, Dennis Law probably doesn't go around fat shaming people for eating salads. It's like a slightly different type of person that's come out of the um, out of the, the kind of the, the forest fairy tale. It's just really interesting. Yeah, I think it's partly it's partly that. I mean, not for, for for the majority of the players in that team that it will be the thing they're most famous for. Not not many of them went on to do anything particularly big. Um, after the, winning those European Cups or, or winning the um, winning the league in 1978, Peter Shilton obviously is, is yeah. an, an exception. Viv Anderson went on to play for United and Arsenal. I'm not sure he won a huge amount actually, but um, Trevor Francis is is playing. Immortalised by his transfer fee, though, isn't he? Immortalised by, by the transfer fee and the, the winning goal in the, in the 79 final. He kind of went on to have a, a decent career, but kind of ruined by. I mean, essentially derailed by um, uh, an Achilles injury. I think yeah. he had in just before the second European Cup final. Um, but you know, R- Robertson declined relatively quickly after that. McGovern um, didn't uh, went on to play for Bolton. I think he did. Um, Ian Bowyer kind of came and went. Martin O'Neill didn't really have much of a playing a huge amount of a playing career after Forest. Similar with Larry Lloyd and. Um, Kenny Burns, uh, Frank Clark. I think I'm right in saying that the the United seventy nine European Cup final was his last ever game. So uh, t- Tony Woodcock, I think, went on to um, to do quite well, do very well in Germany. Um, Archie Gemmell had his moment, obviously. Archie, the uh, the yeah, but yeah, but but even that was that that was the seventy eight World Cup. So it was, yeah. Yeah, but that was even before the um, the European Cup winning teams. So I think that's that's kind of part of it, and it's it also feeds into this thing that I know the players in that team are still slightly I don't know whether bitter about bitter is the quite the right word but they are still they're still aware that 
they were seen at the time as this the, the, the phrase they all use is ragtail and uh, ragtail bob team that was just this kind of collection of misfits thrown together and you know and um uh you know the the great alchemy of Clough and Taylor merged these collection of relatively average talents into a team that did some extraordinary things for three years which to an extent is true but I, I know that they are uh again bitter's probably not the right word but they they think they don't get the credit that they deserve they've been shortchanged they've been shortchanged individually yeah. they all obviously speak with great reverence about Clough and it's quite it, it's quite interesting that it's not always necessarily that they think I wasn't given the credit for my talent that I deserved. They will often point to, to teammates like the, 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 and Robertson is, is the is the big one that that you know people like Bertels and, and Woodcock and John McGovern will talk for hours about what a genius John Robertson was and how he wasn't given the credit he deserved and how he wasn't elevated to the kind of um, the sort of heights of praise that um, he might have done if he had played for Liverpool, for example, which is the sort of inevitable thing with A, playing for a relatively small provincial club, but B, the star of that team wasn't any of the players. It was Clough. Which is quite a unique thing. I mean, mm. you could, I mean, you can't even really make that argument for Busby because obviously best law Charlton... Um, Liverpool, you know, you have a sit that succession of dynastic managers who, you know, um, sit alongside the players that they they coached. What's John Robertson like? Because he he's the one that sort of um, I know this Forest team through, um, you know, the the books that have been written about them, the documentaries that have been made. Like, I don't think if you were to if you were to write a book about that forest period um i would probably buy it within an hour it's weird i, I kind of have this strange attachment to it i have nothing to do with i don't think i've even been to nottingham before um don't support nottingham forest i don't have any kind of there's no there's no there's no crossover in the venn diagram between me and but it's just it's just a fascinating period but he um the stories with him i love the idea of um of what he was the kind of the you know the the, the character that um that peter taylor was kind of lecturing by the hotel swimming pool um, versus a player that, like, I mean, I've heard the comparison that you, it's it's um, without probably the pace, but Robertson is Ryan Giggs, but with a right foot. Um, yeah, which is just a, it's an amazing thing to imagine. But you you've spent time with him. What's he what's he like as a person? He he, he always seems to be a guy who has ex- very very little ego. Um, certainly in comparison to um, his talent. Which I think probably stems from the, from what we were just talking about that, that that he isn't kind of given the credit that a lot of people think he deserves, and with that doesn't uh, not inevitably, but with that kind of comes um, a relative lack of ego. He's sort of he's always on the sort of few occasions I've been in his company and other people have praised him. He's always very bashful about it, and y- you can see that to a certain extent in um, in the film as well. In uh, in I believe Miracles, um, where he the, the 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 rest of the team line up to call this guy a genius, but he is very sort of um, very modest about the whole thing, and he's kind of saying, "Well, you know, I was you know I was a good player, and I knew Cluffy thinks I was a good player, but he, he doesn't 
have the sort of um, outward self-confidence that um, someone of his talent and someone who is kind of consistently praised by his peers anyway um, that you might think. And it's just as kind of generally quite an unassuming guy. He's not, even when he was a player, you, he... It was the thing my my dad is my dad's favourite player, and my dad always used to say he's never seen anyone that looks less like a footballer than John <laughs> Robertson, which is part, partly because he had a little belly, and partly because he was just this kind of slightly shambling guy who wore scruffy clothes and you know always had a it had his had a cigarette on the go. I only seemed to to own one pair of shoes throughout his entire career. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Um, and even now, you, you know, obviously, you, you you meet ex-professional footballers now, and you can, uh, and and you can, sort of, there is an awareness that this guy um, was a professional athlete at some point in his life. Robertson, you know, there's there's no there's, there's there's no hint of that now, as really there wasn't when he was a player. Okay, so we we'll probably have um, you know a few younger people that. Um, uh, a um, don't know about this period of uh, forest history, but also don't really know anything about John Robertson. So pause the podcast and go and um, just type his name into YouTube. There's um, there's actually a wonderful like highlight reel of Forest uh, progress to the first European Cup final, set to I think "Born to Run" by Springsteen. Um, you just see what, what a good player John Robertson is, and you can actually find out there's a there's a 20 minutes of Robertson highlights somewhere. Might not still be there, but it, it was there a few years ago. So see if you can dig that out. Um, we will go for a quick break and be back again very shortly. Okay, Nick. So you're you're too young for that that to have to have seen that period of forest history firsthand. What's your um, what's your favourite forest memory? My favourite forest memory is quite a sort of personal one, really. It was a um, the game against it was a game against Derby a few years ago, and it uh, when Forests won in the last minute, um, Ben Osborne a uh, homegrown player who's actually from Derby and his family with Derby supporters. Uh, he's now moved on to Sheffield United, obviously. Um, uh, he scored a 92nd minute goal, I think, for us 1-2-1. And I was there with my dad, who a few months earlier had had a heart attack and was, um, you know, as as heart attacks go, it was relatively minor, but it's still, it's, he had a heart attack. And um, just the... I, I I have been to very few Forest games over the years as a fan without Dad, and it's never the same when he, you know he isn't there. So with all of that and the, the 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 you know the very real prospect that he wasn't going to be around anymore, um, and him being there and you know us being together together at the game for this kind of incredible climax at the moment. It was also Stuart Pearce's, I think, penultimate game as Forest manager. Uh, it was certainly very close to the end of his of his tenure and if Forrest had lost that game then he would almost certainly have been sacked as he was, you know, a, a couple of weeks later. Um but it was just this confluence of unlikely events that came together to produce the kind of perfect moment of, of being a football fan. Um you know, it, it it for for fans of bigger clubs, that kind of thing might feel quite small time. It was just one game, um, admittedly quite a big game against local rivals, but it was just one game in a in a season where Forest didn't really do very much. Certainly didn't win anything, but 
the way I've kind of grown up watching watching football and going to see Forest, it was incredibly important to me, and I really should have just jacked it in at that point. I, I, I you know, uh, as we were kind of alluding to earlier on, Forest aren't going to win the European Cup again. They're not going to win the Premier League unless something absolutely implausible happens. And you know, at the moment, they're making a very good go of never being able to get in the Premier League again. So that sort of thing is what I still go to football for to kind of search for a moment like that and I'm not really sure it's it's um it's it's gonna take quite a confluence of events to top that. Um and really I should have just quit while I was ahead and never gone to another football game as a fan ever again. But you know, I've um I've been back and I went to the uh Forest Derby game the following season where I think Forest lost five nil. So, you know, ruin that one. You know, there's something interesting in there because, like, um, like when, when when life throws up its traumas, and like my, my dad had a heart attack about 20 years ago as well, and like you know, it's just it's a scary, scary, scary thing when it happens. But when when these things happen, when they rattle you, when there's a kind of like an uncertainty in life, whether it be like a family thing or a, like a job thing or a relationship thing, it's amazing how how much comfort football seems to offer. Like you can have a, um, I'll give you an example. It, it's 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 very different. I, I um I was I was going through it'd be about goodness about twelve or thirteen years ago now, um, and I was going through um, a, a really difficult time with the job I was in at the moment, big old recession uh, out in the world, and it was a company that was linked to the property industry. Um, shows how weird my career has been, um, and wasn't very happy. Um, was living in a real shithole of a place in London that I could barely afford anyway. Um, and I remember um, it was the night that uh, Tottenham drew 4-4 with, um, with Arsenal at, um, at the Emirates. And um, I went to the pub to watch it with a couple of friends. And uh, I remember getting utterly hacked off um, at 40 and leaving. Just, you know, you're having the proper strop. You know, just like, oh, fuck this, I'm, you know, whatever. Um, I think Alan Hutton had just passed it straight to Adebayo for the third time that night or something, and it just, it broke me. It's like, you know, when, when football throws something up which makes you hemorrhage inside, just think, I can't, <laughs> cannot have any more of this. And I just walked out, and I was like, I'll just walk home, whatever. And um, I was walking back, and uh, between that happening um, and me walking to the next pub, I walked past the next pub um, at the moment that... Um, Genus uh, makes a 4-3, runs up, takes the ball off Gab Clichy, um, curls it into Arminia's far post, and it's 4-3 and, you know, running, off the, uh, running, the, um, uh, running the ball back to the halfway line. And I went into the pub and um, obviously, everyone knows, uh, Aaron Lennon ends up scoring, making, making it 4-4. Um, and it was, it was incredible. There were just all these, this was in South London, um, so, you know, very much not Tottenham territory. But there are all these Tottenham fans in there. like, And, and they all, it just felt at the time like everyone was just as hacked off with everything to do with their life as I was at that moment. And it was just this wild mess of celebration in the pub. Like, And there were people, you know, this was 2000 and 2008, I think. So like this was, like, every pub in the country has gone gastro by then. You know, there isn't the idea of going to, to, to pubs to watch football anymore. It's kind of, you know, it's on the way out, which is desperately, desperately sad. Um, and it was just like, it was one of those moments where football just shows up for you, gives you a little bit of an adrenaline shot, and a bit of a, um, 
a little bit of a boost at a really timely moment and so and when you say that that's kind of it seems all in the consequential like um to, you know to fans of big clubs i think anybody that's ever followed a football club will, will kind of relate to that weird little habit the game has of just being able to, to pick you up and just say yeah it'll be shit in a week's time don't get me wrong it was probably for six months after that but at, the, at, at that precise moment it's just there and it's just like it's you know here's a here's a thing here's a nice thing for you and in your case here's a nice thing for you and your dad because it's been really really rubbish for a while i think that's the magic of the game yeah and it's just just <clears throat> provides some kind of normalcy as well I wrote a piece about this a few years ago, and I included this next bit in it as well. But um, the uh, earlier in the year that um, Dad had a heart attack, my sister um, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and um, you know, it was a it was a quite a spicy year. Um, and um, I went back up to Nottingham on the day that England played Uruguay in the, t- the 2014 World Cup. And we all kind of gathered at my parents' house. A few of the family members were, were there as well. We watched the game, and we kind of weren't really, we didn't really care about England losing. We weren't massively involved with the kind of intricacies of the game, but it was just this kind of thing to firstly take your mind off the kind of awful realities of everything um, that was just there when you needed it, and you know it just provided some kind of some some sort of normalcy and something to to you know take your mind off things that genuinely matter which isn't just obviously isn't to say that football doesn't matter but it matters less than than those other things um and you can use it to to um distract yourself that's that's the word i was going to use it's life's great distraction that's its role really like for some people, it becomes a little bit more than that. Like the people that sort of, um, you know, hang around at outside stadiums on non-match days, hoping to be interviewed by Sky Sports. Like for that kind of person, don't know. But like, I think a lot of people, it's kind of, it's the other thing, you know, that you that you have and the, the other place to go. Um, so, Monday Forest um, moments like that. Well, let's skip to the immediate present. Um, Sabri Lamucci is gone. Um, Championship manager legend from the nineties, obviously. Um, what went wrong there? Because I, I, I'm not going to pretend to have um, paid a huge amount of attention to Forest last season, but like I saw the game against Leeds, which I thought they were excellent in. Um, there's a lot of players there that are quite talented. Really like the goalkeeper, by the way. I think he's he's excellent. Um, what happened towards the end of last season? I, I know I'm building up to that Stoke game and what happened with Swansea and um, asking you to relive what is obviously a big trauma, but like it doesn't. For, from from an outsider, it felt like something that was typically Forest, but without me really being able to explain why that is. I mean, the the sort of the actual answer to what happened is that the you can is in a weird way you could see in that Leeds game. That Leeds game was the way that Forest could play last season. It was the, you know it's a lot of um, solid defence, but playing on the counter attack and not really having a great deal of possession. And you know, doing one thing quite well, which worked until uh, it it didn't it wasn't quite as neat as um as it working until lockdown. But you could kind of split the season up for Forest roughly in that, and that yeah that worked for a little while, and then all of a sudden it didn't work, and it didn't work in quite 
flamboyant fashion. There were a couple of games post-lockdown where Forest were quite unlucky not to kind of pick up various wins, but equally you could say that they were quite unlucky in the same way in a few, on, a, on a few different occasions. So then you start to think that isn't actually unlucky, that's just a recurring problem, particularly with conceding late goals. And when you have a team that don't score very many goals, um, only have one striker to speak of, and only really had um, you know, 12 or 13 players that you could probably hang your hat on, um, then that kind of thing is, is inevitably going to sort of catch up with you. Um, the sort of mad trolley dash of the around the transfer market this summer is kind of ludicrous enough. At the time of recording, Forrest have signed a mere 13 players, but by the time people listen to this, it may have ticked up to 15. Um, Anthony Knockhart Anthony Knockhart will be one of them. It will be one of them. Possibly Camille Grzycki as well coming good player, in. Good player. All, you know, good players. But um, it, it compares very unfavourably to the January transfer window when Forrest not only didn't really sign anyone, but probably made the team or the squad worse. Um, signed a guy who I felt so sorry for because he, at some point, someone had told him he was a you know a professional footballer, um, <laughs> and you know he had a professional he had a contract to be a professional footballer, so he didn't have uh, you know people hadn't really um, dissuaded him of this, this fact, but he he just he, he's I mean, uh, and I've had plenty of comparison here. One of the worst footballers I've ever seen. Um, Dear Carby, his name was. We got it. We signed signed him on loan at the last minute from Huddersfield Town, um, and yeah, there was just the, the, there was it, it would it it's a sort of typically Forest thing um, to just get things a bit wrong and the, the timing of things getting them a bit wrong. If you want to if you want to go kind of all, all the way back, Forest got into the uh, lost in the playoff semi finals in quite heartbreaking fashion in 2003 with a really good young team that was a team with um Michael Dawson and mm-hmm. Andy Reid and David Prutton and Marlon Harewood if you who you know was actually a very Marlon Harewood was a good player very good player Spe- for, especially at that level yeah for 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 a little, for a while he was a he was a really good I mean particularly then when he was very young and um was kind of still relatively raw but scored a lot of goals for Forest um had Darren Huckabee on loan who was um Obviously, a brilliant player at that level, and went on to be a, a, a hero at Norwich. Um, but after that season, there was this real kind of um, opportunity to build on that kind of success, uh, that kind of team, and that success under Paul Hart. And um, and it, it didn't happen. Forrest didn't really sign anyone, and it all kind of collapsed from there. The team broke up, and obviously. Reed and Dawson was sold. I think the following year, maybe the year after. We took um, them both off your hands, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was it, was, it, it was eerily similar in January. There was this kind of very promising team with a manager who had he had a certain uh, he had a, a style of play and didn't really have an alternative style of play, but it could have worked if you know they signed an extra uh, striker to take the load off Lewis Graben or they'd signed. Uh, another winger to give an option when the you know the, the 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 starting two wingers were knackered, or had maybe signed I don't know another left back or something like that. But 
uh, they just didn't do anything, and no one, uh, no one reasonable was expecting Forrest to you know spend five million pounds on someone or you know try and I don't know rival West Ham for Jared Bowen or someone like that. But it was that nothing was done. That that was the that was the sort of kicker that eventually came back to bite them. I feel like in a strange way that actually. Like you, you're quite right. You're not expecting like championship sides to spend huge amounts of money at the moment, but I feel like because of the um, because of the climate in the Premier League, there are a lot of clubs who want to get players temporarily off their wage bills, and there's a little bit of opportunity in that, like for the loan market certainly. Um, you talk about glut of um, glut of players and it's kind of the um, slightly muddled recruiting. Who is talk me through the the structure above? Well, Chris Hooten's come in, um, good man, uh, good coach. What does a structure look like above him at the moment between him and the owner? Mm, interesting question. Um, there is, there are, although there, there certainly have been in the last six months or so, um, a number of people with all the sort of job titles that you would expect from a modern forward-thinking football club. So there's a sporting director, and there's a head of recruitment, and there's a head of international recruitment or something like that. Um one of which was uh, so someone's watched a, watched a documentary, basically. <laughs> yeah, right. kind of, yeah. yeah. So they've they've asked someone to, you know, compile a report about what a football club should look like. Ah, and, there, and there you yeah. go. Um, uh, one of them, a guy called Jose Inigo, was I think the head of international recruitment. I think he was. Um, was kind of arrived a little while ago. Um, you know, much was made of contacts and so on and so forth. Um, I believe there was at some point there was a link up with uh, Uncle George Mendes, who uh, you know is obviously doing his thing to great effect at Wolves. Um, and this guy, a couple of weeks ago, it emerged that this guy Jose Nigo had been uh, arrested in France for something or other. At which point it was then kind of hurriedly the news was hurriedly ushered out that his contract had actually ended at Forest in the summer and uh, he wasn't involved anymore. As far as I'm aware, this wasn't, you know, th- th- this was the first that anyone knew or, or any, that they had made any public acknowledgement that he was no longer involved in things, which sort of sums up the way that, um, that you know, that Forest are run and are governed, that it sort of, you know, no, no there was no forethought to any of this. It was just sort of this news would, was ushered out at a time where to kind of, um, alleviate a little bit of embarrassment, but you know there are the, the, there are there are um, theoretical structures in place. Um, apparently, he, he wasn't the the man solely in charge of transfers. But apparently, Sabu Lamucci had a plenty of involvement in um, uh, in you know the recruitment and the selection of the, all the transfers this summer, which made it. You know, even more strange that he was sacked after four games. On the surface of it, the the collapse at the end of last season and the fact that Forrest lost those four games doesn't make it a particularly surprising decision. But um, having decided to stick with him in the summer after that collapse and then giving him a, um, a a kind of key role in signing these thirteen players to sack him just sort of speaks to the sort of muddled thinking. Um, there was a lot of. Uh, optimism from people who kind of know more about what goes on at the club than I do when the current owners came in a few years ago Um, that seems to have now more or less disappeared and while we're not quite at the levels of the chaos that existed at the club under 
Fawaz Al-Hasawi a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of trending that way, as I believe the, the phrase is at the moment. So Chris Eaton is obviously a, a, a very well-respected manager at that level. Uh, Pro doesn't get the respect at the higher level that he's due. I mean, he's still been promoted three times in the championship, I think. Um, has anything changed to accommodate him, Nick? Well, it's, it's difficult to say. Um, he will undoubtedly have been made kind of assurances and promises because this wouldn't have been the first job that he would have been uh, offered since uh, leaving Brighton. I think he was... He, he, they, he, he was almost uh, appointed Bristol City manager, I think. That's right. Yeah. Um, so promises, no doubt, will have been made. The, 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 I mean, the honest answer is I don't know whether anything has changed or any, or what has been kind of promised to him. But of course, the you know, uh, the real answer will come in time. It doesn't really matter what's been promised to him. It it, it matters what is actually put in place or or you know or what is done in the the coming few months um which historically has the, there is a gap between uh, uh not just with this ownership with previous ownerships and you know the one before uh, uh al things have been said and um the reality often does not line up to the things that have been said and the things that have been promised. Um, so the simple answer is, I don't know. And even if I did know, um, who knows whether it would actually yeah. kind of come to fruition. And what's the response been like from the fan base? Because obviously, like, start of this season, uh, the conditions around the country, the general state of football, um, that's enough to suck the life out of pretty much anyone. But has is this a, a well-received appointment? The thing about... Pretty much everything that Forrest have done this summer um, is that you can, in isolation, you can make cases, or, or not even make cases, pretty much everything in isolation looks like a very sensible decision. So, for example, you could go through most of the 13 players that have been signed so far and go, yeah, that makes sense. Like, for example, you know, signed Cyrus Christie, who is probably better than the two existing right-backs that Forrest already had on the books. Um, Scott McKenna is apparently. Uh, I, I, you know, I confess I don't watch enough Scottish football to to sure. know about him. But people who know much more about him say he's the real thing, and particularly at Championship level. Knockhart so, is at Championship level a really good player potentially. Like he's not. Yeah, yeah. not Knockhart. Exactly the kind of thing that Forrest need. Uh, Lyle Taylor, uh, exactly the sort of player that Forrest needed yeah. as someone who could support and um, uh, and frequently step in for Lewis Graben. Uh Jack Colback, again, very decent championship level player, needed someone to fill the role that Ben Watson left when he when he left the club in the summer. Um sacking Lamucci after such a bad run of results entirely kind of in the context of modern football anyway, entirely understandable decision. Appointing Chris Hooten, ideal, perfect. It look the, the the exactly the sort of theoretically exactly the sort of manager that you want when you've got a squad full of theoretically talented players at the championship at championship level um who need someone to just kind of knit them all together and make sense of it all the problem is that they all of these theoretically sensible decisions are um being made in this kind of general 
maelstrom of chaos that you know that that is kind of partly um brought about because there are so many of these decisions you know it would have made as a whole it would have made more sense if you know five of those decisions had been made this summer if you know they'd they'd signed four or five players to complement the quite strong team that Forest already had and then you know maybe maybe change the manager to better suit those players but it's the complete change of everything and the the ripping up and starting again after you know what was objectively um the best season that Forest have had in quite a long time um obviously it's the the the, the context uh is that Forest collapsed horribly at the end of last season but we finished seventh and very close to getting into the playoffs when a couple of seasons ago we only survived on goal difference on the last day of the season. Hey, that was a really strong championship last season as well. I mean, it's uh, not it, exactly, you know, it wasn't a weak year. Exactly. So it it is um, the kind of overarching kind of context, if you like, if that doesn't sound too stupid, a, a way of framing it, um, that makes you wonder whether anyone really knows what they're doing and makes you wonder whether um, any of these decisions are actually sensible when kind of brought together and coerced as a whole. And the you know appointment of Hewton exemplifies that, really. Theoretically ideal. Theoretically exactly the sort of man you want in charge of this group of players and it, it, theoretically the, exactly the sort of man you want to be you know, trying to make sense of an incredibly chaotic club, but you just fear that everything or all of this is going to be sucked into this gaping maw that is Nottingham Forest. What an excellent place that would be to finish. Okay, so tell me, um, am I right in thinking that um, uh, The Athletic is adding a Forest podcast to its repertoire in the You very near would future? be right in thinking that, and I'm, 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 thanks, Sam. I'm glad you asked. Is it called um, Maelstrom of Chaos? Is that <laughs> it the- should it should be now. We have actually um, we're we're we're, talk- we're making some final plans for that later on today, and I, maybe I should suggest a change of name. No, the the name of the podcast is Two Stars, a Nottingham Forest podcast, okay. which uh, you know obvious reference to the European Cups and uh, a little dash of um, suitable def- self-deprecation as well. So yes, the this the uh, if all goes to plan, the first episode will be going out. Um, next week, uh, and next week is for people listening out of time of this. It will be on the, I think, the twenty second of October, um, which uh, a few weeks ago we decided that it would be the ideal time to do it because it would be the day before Forest against Derby. Um, now that is starting to look like a less wise decision for in terms of our kind of sanity and um, you know general um, sort of general morale. But it's going to be Matt Davis Adams, um, uh, who you know, presenter of the Totally Football League show, um, fine commentator all round, and um, good voice, uh, Matt Davis Adams. Terrific voice, great voice for podcasting. Excellent, yeah. um, excellent presenter. He will be presenting. Um, Paul Taylor, the Athletics Nottingham Forest correspondent, Very will be the writer. man. Yeah, will be the man to uh, tell you what's actually going on, and then there will be me on kind of general bullshit duty, um, just sort of talking around those guys and you know coming in with stupid opinions and stupid theories and then we'll obviously have um uh there'll be interviews on there there'll be uh other guests obviously daniel taylor obviously also the athletic uh long involved with uh forest and lifelong forest fan 
brilliant, writer brilliant, of brilliant a number writer. of books about yeah. uh, about Forrest. So uh, I believe he'll be on the, uh, or hopefully he'll be on the first edition as well. Um, so yeah, that'll be a weekly Nottingham Forest podcast for um, anyone who wants to enjoy uh, us sort of wallowing in misery, really. Fantastic, mate. I've enjoyed this. It's been great. Actually, you know what? This has worked. We've kind of we very deliberately didn't do any preparation for this, and that seemed like a really good idea until about fifteen minutes before we started recording. Um, but we, I, I was walking the dog with my wife just before we started, and uh, I, I kind of my adrenaline started to rise a bit. Like I think I should have done something because <laughs> it's just. But we got away with it, and it's um, hopefully people have enjoyed it. And um, yeah, as Nick says, go and go and find the new pod as and when it's out. That's a Thursday, isn't it, Nick? The... Uh, we're recording on Thursday. I think it'll be either out on Thursday or, or Friday. I'm okay, Friday morning, sure fantastic. It, but yes, it'll be certainly from next week. Okay, we'll find that in all the usual places with the uh, the Athletics podcast output. Brilliant. Thanks, Nick. Thank you so much for coming in. No worries. Mm-hmm.